everybody. Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Carrie Parker, and we've got a really big news show for you today. Unfortunately, it's all bad. <laughs> um, I've got a lot to get through, uh, and so some of the earlier stories, actually, I'm going to really kind of try to crank through and save some of my opinion because I've got a lot of opinion on the last story we're going to talk about today, which is Apple's new you know, heartfelt, I'm sure, and well-intentioned plan to block child sex abuse material. Obviously, something horrible, but their chosen way of doing it, I think, is misguided and uh, ultimately bad. Definitely, if you have not already, go back and listen to the last couple episodes. They were really a lot of fun, uh, very different from some of the other stuff I would normally do, but it was all about my first trip to DEF CON and a really, really interesting interview with the founder of DEF CON, Jeff Moss. So if you have not checked those out, definitely go back and do so. But uh, we got a new show for you this week. I, for those of you maybe new to the show, I tried to alternate between an interview and a new show. And kind of because of DEF CON, I've actually got a lot of news to catch up on. So um, <laughs> we got a lot to cover today. Still talking about the Microsoft printer nightmare or print nightmare exploitation that's still going around. Uh, we'll talk about that briefly again, unfortunately, because we have to. Uh, we're going to talk about a report about millions, potentially, of home Wi-Fi routers under attack by botnets. We're going to talk about two huge mobile breaches, one with T-Mobile and one with AT&T. We're going to talk about how many millions, potentially, of webcams and baby monitors are being uh, exploited remotely over the web. We're going to talk about how a supposedly secret watch list of up to 2 million potential terrorists or <laughs> people on the no-fly list were somehow leaked. We're going to talk about a little bit about Afghanistan in that Facebook is trying to help the people there block their friends list because, unfortunately, uh, if you're the friends of the wrong people in Afghanistan right now, your physical safety may be in serious danger. And as promised, I wanted to bring at least a couple stories that originated from DEF CON and Black Hat. We're going to talk about one about web apps today and how the mechanism for authenticating yourself has left them open to... Attacked by bad guys. And we're going to talk, I think, an interesting paper about how a lot of cheap IoT devices are screwing up at security when they try to do it. And then we're going to get into this whole Apple child safety thing that they've been pushing. It was very confusingly ruled out, and there's been a lot of misreporting on this in the press. And we're going to talk at length about that at the end of the show. All right, so lots to get to. Let's do it. First up, Microsoft still really hasn't seemed to have patched this print nightmare problem. Honestly, the really the what you need to do is just disable your print spooler. I know this means you can't print. Uh, you know, maybe what you have to do is enable it long enough to print and then disable it again. It's just I don't think even with last week's patch Tuesday, I've heard rumors that they still have not patched all the bugs in this. It's just horrible. And here's that article from Security Boulevard talking about this patch from last week. It says. Last week, in its Patch Tuesday update, Microsoft Security Response Center released an additional security fix for the series of zero-day vulnerabilities known collectively as Print Nightmare, which can be used to break into all versions of Windows computers. According to the executive summary of the Windows Print Spooler Remote Code Execution Vulnerability, 
It says, quote, a remote code execution vulnerability exists when the Windows Prince Spooler service improperly performs privileged file operations. An attacker who successfully exploited this vulnerability could run arbitrary code with system privileges. An attacker could then install programs, view, change, and delete data, or create new accounts with full user rights. The workaround for this vulnerability is stopping and disabling the Print Spooler service, unquote. Since organizations are slow to patch this vulnerability, threat actors are successfully exploiting this threat, according to recent news reports. For example, in a recent blog, Cisco Talos Incident Research noted that threat actors are actively exploiting these vulnerabilities for ransomware attacks. As we know from past experience, an exploited RCE, or Remote Code Execution Vulnerability, relinquishes execution control to the attacker to not only install more tools required to perpetuate the attack, but also establish a two-way communication path back to the attacker's command and control center. The attacker can then gain full keyboard control of the victim. That's an odd way of putting that, but yeah, these are bad. They're still really bad. Microsoft still has not fixed them after several months of trying, uh, and I'm not even sure that this recent patch fixed all the bugs either. Uh, it's really, really horrid, and it's a real, real security risk. So all I can say is just disable your print spooler and make sure that it doesn't start back up at start time. I've got a link on the, again to the show notes to this. There's just a few simple commands you have to do on your Windows machine to make this happen. You basically have to make sure you stop the print server, and then you have to make sure you tell Windows not to restart it automatically. Next up, a nasty bug found in a lot of home Wi-Fi routers. Um, and this is from Tom's Guide. It says, Millions of home Wi-Fi routers are under attack by botnet malware just a week after a researcher put up a blog post showing how to exploit a vulnerability in the router's firmware. The researcher, Evan Grant, isn't entirely at fault for this. He's the one who found the flaw back in January after he took apart a Buffalo-branded router sold in Japan. A patch fixing the firmware flaw was released by Buffalo in April after Tenable, the firm Grant works for, informed Buffalo. The problem is that at least 36 other models of routers distributed by 20 different companies have identical or very similar flaws, and firmware patches may not yet be available for all of those. Few people even know you need to update your router's firmware just as you need to update your computer or phone. Some of these routers may be rented to customers by internet service providers, or ISPs. If so, then the ISPs will be responsible for the firmware updates. The affected routers include models distributed by Asus, British Telecom, Buffalo, Deutsche Telecom, O2, Orange, Spark NZ, Telmex, Telstra, Telus, Verizon, and Vodafone, among other brands. Quote, potentially affecting millions of devices worldwide, unquote, according to a Tenable blog post first put up in April and later a Tenable white paper. Here's a full list of known affected models and the affected firmware, and then it, I'll just have to point you to the article because it's a really, really long list. So again, articles in the show notes. And then back to the article, it says, as you might guess by the number of phone companies among those brands, a good chunk of the affected models are in all-in-one DSL gateway combination modem routers that are given or leased to customers by the internet service providers. Others use Fios or cellular data connections to get internet access, but almost all are routers combined with some form of broadband modem, not standalone routers that need a separate modem to get broadband access. And I'll explain that in a minute. Unfortunately, your options are limited if you're leasing or renting your home router or gateway from your ISP. If that is your situation and your ISP is one of the brands mentioned above, then check the router for a model number and see if it matches a model mentioned. Again, see the link in the show notes. Even then, though, it's hard to be sure because some ISPs will not put the actual model number on the unit. Your best bet is to contact your ISP's customer service and bother them about this. 
If you own your own router and you are somewhat technically skilled, then you should access the administrative settings to check the model number and firmware version. Plugging an Ethernet cable from a laptop into the one of the router's Ethernet ports is the quickest way to do this. If your router is one of the models on the list and the firmware is out of date, you'll need to check for updated firmware. We have a generic guide for how to update your router's firmware here. And again, you'll have to go to the show notes and get the link to this article and you'll find the link in that article. But in truth, the procedure varies from model to model. That's putting it lightly. Some new routers will update themselves and others may have a mechanism within the administrative interface to check for firmware updates. Sometimes you'll have to go to the support website of the company whose name is on the router and see whether you can download an update from there. If you're already in the administrative interface, then poke around and see if you can disable remote access. Turning that off will protect you from almost all router attacks that can be carried out over the internet. Yes, so I've said many, many of those things myself before. Uh, I would also say go, I, I stumbled on this website called routersecurity.org, just like it sounds. Uh, again, link in the show notes that has a lot of really terse, dense, but comprehensive router security tips and tricks. But I said I would explain a couple things. So when you get internet service from somewhere, uh, you have an internet service provider. That's often a cable company, but it's sometimes a phone company. If it's a DSL type service or a fiber service or a satellite service, there's lots of different ways to get internet. But because there's all those different ways, there's some box called a modem that translates whatever their particular method is for transmitting those signals, satellite, cable, fiber, whatever, to ethernet, to basic regular ethernet that we're all used to. So on one side is a cable or fiber or something on the other side is ethernet. That's a modem. Now, a lot of these internet service providers are now combining that modem with a built-in Wi-Fi router. It's convenient and uh, frankly gives them way too much access to your home network as far as I'm concerned. So I never recommend that people do that. However, you may be in a situation where you have one of these things. And this is a case where uh, you might not like that because now you're at their mercy to update the software in the box that's in your home. So uh, I would always recommend that you have your own Wi-Fi router uh, separate from whatever one may be given to you for free by your internet service provider. And you could just ask them to turn their Wi-Fi off, but you could just also ignore it. If you put your router behind uh, their box, whatever their box is, then you at least control everything from that router on, including being able to decide if that router is out of date and needs a software update. So anyway, check out this article. Basically, if you have a DSL service of any sort, or maybe even a FIO service, uh, look at your modem, look at the box that was given to you by them, most likely, and find the make and model and check the link in this article, see if it's on that list. And if so, follow the instructions given here. And that is basically go bug your ISP and make sure that it's up to date. All right, moving on. First of two big cell phone data breaches. The first one was T-Mobile and the claim so far is that up to 100 million customer data records have been compromised. And this is an article from CPO Magazine. It says, mobile carrier T-Mobile, the second largest in the U.S. as of uh, the second quarter of this year, appears to have suffered a devastating data breach as a reported 100 million records have appeared for sale on a dark web forum. The customer data is about as sensitive as possible, with Vice's Motherboard magazine verifying that a sampling of it contained accurate social security numbers and driver's license numbers, among other pieces of personal information. At this time, T-Mobile is still investigating the data breach and has yet to confirm the full extent of the exposed personal information. But independent reporting indicates that customers should assume the worst at this point and take steps to protect themselves. As of the second quarter of this year, the company was estimated to have 104 million customers. So it appears that this data breach affects nearly everyone that subscribes to its service. 
T-Mobile issued an update on the morning of August 18th, confirming that at least 47 million of its customers were impacted, including former subscribers. The company at this point has only issued a quote-unquote preliminary analysis, but has confirmed at this time that at least 7.8 million current post-paid T-Mobile subscribers may have had detailed personal information, such as social security and driver's license numbers, exposed in the data breach. It also says that 40 million additional customers had records exposed, but that the customer data did not include much in the way of personal information. It also confirmed that at least 850,000 active T-Mobile customers had their account pins exposed in addition to their names and phone numbers. The company said that it was processing quote-unquote additional information and that there would be quote-unquote more fallout to come. Jack Chapman, VP of Threat Intelligence at Egress, highlighted some of the threats that T-Mobile customers can realistically expect. And this is a quote from him. He says, quote, The data leaked in this breach is reported as being already accessible to cybercriminals who could now weaponize it to formulate sophisticated phishing attacks targeting the victims. In light of this, I would urge any customers who have been affected by this breach to be wary of any unexpected communications they may now receive, whether that's over email, text messages, or phone calls. Follow-up attacks may utilize the information accessed through this data breach to trick people into sharing more personal data that can be used for identity and financial fraud, unquote. The data breach was first reported by Motherboard on Sunday as a report, and this would have been, I think, a week ago, as a reporter came across a dark web forum post offering the massive trove of T-Mobile customer data for sale. The original post offered social security numbers, phone numbers, full names, physical addresses, unique device IMEI numbers, which is just a fancy serial number for your cell phone, and driver's license numbers. With Motherboard verifying that an available sample contained accurate information on known T-Mobile subscribers. While the source of the hack is still not known, chats with the seller indicate there was some sort of a backdoor into T-Mobile's servers available to them. The seller said that the backdoor was closed after creating the listing, but that they had exfiltrated all of the data and made multiple backups of it. T-Mobile has only said that it is confident that the security hole used to access the data has been closed. So... We're still not sure exactly where the data came from. Honestly, if you're a T-Mobile subscriber, that doesn't really much matter to you at this point. And again, the bottom line is your very personal data may be out there. I would personally put credit freezes on all three of the major U.S. credit bureaus. It's free. And yeah, it's a pain if you want to get a new loan or a new credit card, but they've actually made it pretty simple. You can just log in online, thaw out your credit for a few days, and it will automatically freeze up again when you're done. It's a pain, but in situations like this, it's really the best advice. And as this article says, just be aware now that that information can now be used against you or could possibly be used for identity theft. So stay on your game. And shortly after that appeared, there was an article about maybe up to 70 million AT&T customers having their data leaked. Uh, This is from Restore Privacy. Hot on the heels of a massive data breach with T-Mobile earlier this week, AT&T now appears to be in the spotlight. A well-known threat actor in the underground hacking scene is claiming to have private data from 70 million AT&T customers. The threat actor goes by the name of Shiny Hunters and was also behind other previous exploits that affected Microsoft, Tokopedia, whatever that is, Pixar, Mashable, Minted, and more. The hacker posted the leak on an underground hacking forum earlier today, and this was a few days ago along with a sample of the data that we analyzed. In the original post that we discovered on a hacker forum, the user posted a relatively small sample of the data. We examined the sample, and it appears to be authentic based on available public records. Additionally, the user who posted it has a history of major breaches and exploits. While we cannot yet confirm the data is from AT&T customers, everything we examined appears to be valid. 
Here is the data that is available in this leak. Name, phone number, physical address, email address, social security number, and date of birth. The data is currently being offered for $1 million US dollars for a direct sell or $200,000 for access that is given to others. Assuming it is legit, this would be a very valuable breach as other threat actors can likely purchase and use the information for exploiting AT&T customers for financial gain. A data breach of this scale is a very serious issue, especially if the data includes detailed private information, particularly social security numbers. Specifically, AT&T users could be at risk of the following attacks. Identity theft, phishing attempts, social engineering attacks, hacked accounts, and social security scams. We strongly urge AT&T customers to be vigilant against any suspicious activities and or compromised accounts on other platforms. The website HaveIBeenPwned.com, which is maintained by cybersecurity researcher Troy Hunt, who we've had it on this show several times, is a useful tool to check if your personal information has been compromised. AT&T has provided us with a comment on the situation posted below in its entirety. And this is a quote from AT&T. It says, quote, Based on our investigation today, the information that appeared in an internet chat room does not appear to have come from our systems, unquote. This is an interesting response. The claim that this was posted in a quote-unquote internet chat room is simply not correct. It was posted in a well-known hacking forum by a user with a history of large and verified exploits. And then the hacker here, Shiny Hunters, replied to AT&T's statement by telling Restore Privacy, quote, It doesn't surprise me. I think that we'll keep denying it until I leak everything, unquote. Yeah, so great. Another data breach. Same thing as the last one. Same kind of protections as last time. If you think you've been affected, freeze your credit and be ready to sign up for credit monitoring if offered for free. And just be on the lookout for scams that somebody could get up to if they had that information in their possession. Okay, folks, and the hits just keep on coming. Here's another one. Um, this one's from Wired. And this one's about webcams and baby monitors potentially being hacked. Again, from Wired, a vulnerability is lurking in numerous types of smart devices, including security cameras, DVRs, and even baby monitors that could allow an attacker to access live video and audio streams over the internet and even take full control of the gadgets remotely. What's worse is it's not limited to a single manufacturer. It shows up in a software development kit, or SDK, that permeates more than 83 million devices and over a billion connections to the internet each month. The SDK in question is Thrutex Kalay, that's spelled K-A-L-A-Y, which provides a plug-and-play system for connecting smart devices with their corresponding mobile apps. The Kalay platform brokers the connection between a device and its app, handles authentication, and sends commands and data back and forth. For example, Kalay offers built-in functionality to coordinate between a security camera and an app that can remotely control the camera angle. Researchers from the security firm Mandiant discovered the critical bug at the end of 2020, and they are publicly disclosing it today in conjunction with the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agencies, or DHS's CISA. And this is a quote from uh, Jake Valletta, who's the director of Mandiant. He says, quote, You build Calais in, and it's the glue and functionality that these smart devices need an attacker could connect to a device at will, retrieve audio and video, and use the remote API to then do things like trigger a firmware update, change the panning angle of a camera, or reboot the device. And the user doesn't know anything is wrong, unquote. The flaw is in the registration mechanism between the devices and their mobile applications. The researchers found that this most basic connection hinges on the device's UID, or unique Calais identifier. 
an attacker who learns a device's UID, which Valletta says could be obtained through a social engineering attack or by searching for web vulnerabilities of a given manufacturer, and who has some knowledge of the Calais protocol can re-register the UID and essentially hijack the connection the next time someone attempts to legitimately access the targeted device. The user will experience a few seconds of lag, but then everything proceeds normally from their perspective. The attacker, though, can grab special credentials, typically a random unique username and password, that each manufacturer sets for its devices. With the UID plus this login, the attacker can then take control of the device remotely through Calais without any other hacking or manipulation. Attackers can also potentially use full control of an embedded device like an IP camera as a jumping-off point to burrow deeper into a target's network. By exploiting the flaw, an attacker could watch video feeds in real time, potentially viewing sensitive security footage or peeking inside a baby's crib. They could launch a denial-of-service attack against cameras or other gadgets by shutting them down. Or they could install malicious firmware on targeted devices. Additionally, since the attack works by grabbing credentials and then using Calais as intended to remotely manage embedded devices, victims wouldn't be able to oust intruders by wiping or resetting their equipment. Hackers could simply relaunch the attack. As with many other Internet of Things security meltdowns, though, identifying where the bug exists is a far cry from getting it fixed. ThruTech is only one part of a massive ecosystem that needs to participate in addressing the vulnerability. Manufacturers incorporate Calais in their products, which may then be bought by another company to be sold with a particular brand name. This means that while ThruTech offers options that can be enabled to mitigate the flaw, it's difficult to know exactly how many companies rely on Calais and need to turn these features on if they are even running a new enough version of the SDK to do it. For regular users who may already have vulnerable devices in their homes or businesses, there's no complete list of impacted devices to work off of. You should simply install any available software updates on your embedded devices whenever possible. Mandiance Valletta says he's hopeful that today's public disclosure will help raise awareness and get more large vendors to update Calais and their products. But he says, realistically, fixes may never come to devices made by smaller companies, those who don't invest heavily in security, or those who buy their devices from white-label providers and then slap a brand name on. All right, so, uh, by the way, that's, this article goes on. I've already been abridging most of the articles I've been reading just to try to keep it shorter today. But this is, <laughs> this is horrendous. And this is actually one of the problems that a software bill of materials is trying to address. Software today is not all built and written by a single manufacturer. It's, it's piece parts. It's, it's integrating all sorts of different software development kits and APIs and libraries into this Frankenstein that is modern day software. And the only way to know if your device contains a particular piece of software is if that device, or at least the manufacturer of that device, is able to produce on demand a software bill of materials. The list of all the various software components that went into making the overall piece of software, what versions they are, who made them, and so on and so forth. Until we get to that point, it's going to be nearly impossible to figure out, once these kinds of bugs are found, where they exist, uh, and therefore it will be very hard to get them fixed. All right, next up, yet another data breach. And this one... <laughs> This is going to be interesting. I'm sure we'll hear more about this in the future, but this was basically the no-fly list, um, which is the list of people suspected of being terrorists. And here's an article from Bleeping Computer. It says, In July this year, security discovery researcher Bob Diachenko came across a plethora of JSON, and JSON is just JavaScript object notation. It's just a type of file format. A plethora of JSON records in an exposed Elasticsearch cluster that piqued his interest. And Elasticsearch is just a 
brand name for, let's say it's an online database, basically, uh, data storage. The 1.9 million strong record set contains sensitive information on people, including their names, country citizenship, gender, date of birth, passport details, and no-fly status. The exposed server was indexed by search engines Census and ZoomEye, indicating Diachenko may not have been the only person to come across this list. The researcher told Bleeping Computer that given the nature of the exposed fields, for example, passport details and no-fly indicator, it appeared to be a no-fly or similar terrorist watch list. And this is a quote from Diachenko. He says, quote, That was the only valid guess given the nature of data, plus there was a specific field named TSC underscore ID, unquote which hinted to him that the source of the record set could be the Terrorist Screening Center, or TSC. FBI's TSC is used by multiple federal agencies to manage and share consolidated information for counterterrorism purposes. The agency maintains the classified watch list called the Terrorist Screening Database, sometimes also referred to as the No-Fly List. Such databases are considered highly sensitive in nature, considering the vital role they play in aiding national security and law enforcement tasks. Terrorists and reasonable suspects who pose a national security risk are, quote-unquote, nominated for placement on the secret watch list at the government's discretion. The list is referenced by airlines and multiple agencies, such as Department of State, Department of Defense, Transportation Security Authority, and Customs and Border Protection to check if a passenger is allowed to fly, inadmissible to the U.S., or assess their risk for various other activities. The researcher discovered the exposed database on July 19th, interestingly, on a server with the Bahrain IP address, not a U.S. one. However, the same day, he rushed to report the data leak to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, or DHS. And then a quote from Diachenko, says, I discovered the exposed data on the same day and reported it to the DHS. The exposed server was taken down about three weeks later on August 9th, 2021. It's not clear why it took so long, and I don't know for sure whether any unauthorized parties accessed it, unquote. The researcher considers this data leak to be serious, considering watch lists can list people who are suspected of an illicit activity but are not necessarily charged with any crime. And another quote from Diachenko says, quote, In the wrong hands, this list could be used to oppress, harass, or persecute people on the list and their families. It could cause any number of personal and professional problems for innocent people whose names were included in the list, unquote. And this, I guess, is given an example in the article. It says, cases where people landed on the no-fly list for refusing to become an informant aren't unheard of. Diachenko believes this leak could therefore have negative repercussions for such people and suspects. And a final quote from Diachenko says, the TSC watch list is highly controversial. The ACLU, for example, has for many years fought against the use of a secret government no-fly list without due process, unquote. Note, it is not confirmed if the server leaking the list belonged to a U.S. government agency or a third-party entity. Bleeping Computer has reached out to the FBI, uh, and according to this update, it says the FBI had no comment. So let me keep moving on to yet another story. This is from the New York Times, and it's about Facebook and Afghanistan. Facebook says it has added several security features to help people in Afghanistan control their accounts as fears rise of reprisals from the Taliban. In a series of tweets late Thursday, Facebook's head of security said the company had temporarily disabled the ability to view and search the friends list of Facebook accounts inside Afghanistan. He also said the platform, I assume Facebook, which is seeing a proliferation of new Taliban accounts despite a ban on the group, had provided a tool to help Afghans quickly lock their accounts if they feared being targeted. The unprecedented measures target one of the most fundamental Facebook features, the friends list. 
They represent a frank acknowledgement from the company, which has long touted its ability to connect the world, of the risks of having personal information available on social networks. Since the Taliban retook control of Afghanistan this week, or last week now, their promises of amnesty and reconciliation have been undermined by reports that their soldiers are engaging in reprisal attacks and forcibly cracking down on protests. In the days since the militants took over the cities, including Kabul, the capital, many Afghans have shuttered their social media accounts and deleted messages out of fear that their digital footprints would make them targets of the former insurgents. In the past, the Taliban have meted out brutal retribution against Afghans with ties to the country's former government or Western countries such as the United States. Facebook's head of security, Nathan Gleacher, Gletcher, Gletcher, also urged people with friends in Afghanistan to consider tightening their own privacy settings. All right, so you're getting a theme here. <laughs> and just last week in my interview with Jeff Moss, he basically said, if you can't protect it, don't collect it. We've got to stop collecting data just because we can, just because we think it might be useful, just because we want it for marketing purposes, just because we want to get more customers. And if we do collect it, we absolutely have to protect it. But I mean, this is why things as simple as your social graph are really important and tell a lot about you. All right, I need to keep moving on. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. All right, so I just came back from DEF CON and Black Hat. And so there's always articles that, that come out right around that time because, you know, research is being presented. And sometimes these guys save their really big stuff for these two conferences, particularly because they're such big deals and they get a lot of press attention. And so I wanted to bring up at least a couple news articles that came from Black Hat and DEF CON. First one is from Tom's Guide. And this one is about how web apps work today with our logins and how that mechanism is actually, unfortunately, kind of easy to exploit and needs to be fixed. Okay, so from the article, it says, the shared login tokens and processes used by many web-based apps and services, as well as some web apps themselves, are fundamentally insecure and create a potential goldmine for hackers, according to three security researchers from Black Hat and DEF CON. The problem is that today's online services are so complex and difficult to understand that hackers, fishers, and other crooks have plenty of opportunities to steal files, implant malware, and gain access to accounts. Now, there's several quotes here um, from different folks that gave their talks at DEF CON and Black Hat. Uh, this first one is from Jenko Huang. Uh, he's a researcher at Netscope. And he gave a talk at DEF CON and he says, quote, lots of bad assumptions were made when protecting these protocols. OAuth is a mess and no one understands it all. Now, uh, I don't want to get into OAuth, um, but it's like capital O and then A-U-T-H. Um, it's an authentication protocol. It's used all over the place. You know, big names, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Twitter, hundreds of other companies. And this article, we'll talk a little bit more about it here in a minute, but that's what OAuth is. Here's another quote from uh, Matt Bryant, who's a Snapchat researcher. In the DEF CON presentation just before Huang, Snapchat researcher Matt Bryant showed how Google's own cloud-based apps script application development platform makes it easy to hijack Google accounts and gain access to files, contacts, and emails in the online Google Workspace environment. And at Black Hat on Thursday, August 5th, Matt Weeks of Deloitte, showed how file-accessing web apps that are supposed to be restricted to specific directories can, quote-unquote, escape their confines and end up hacking desktop computers. To minimize the risks of phishing attacks that abuse OAuth and Google Workspace, you could, in theory, log out of each account when you're finished using it for the day in order to kill the access tokens and session cookies, but you'd have to do so on each device on which you're logged in. This creates tremendous inconvenience. Who really logs out of Twitter when they're done using it? 
Who's got to log out of Google every day on each PC, Mac, or smartphone they own only to log in again the next day? And furthermore, you're vulnerable again as soon as you log in. To minimize the risks of file-altering apps, be very alert when a website asks you to grant permission to a file or folder on your PC or Mac, and make sure that the files you grant access to have specific names. OAuth was developed by Twitter, Google, and other companies, and the first version was finalized in 2010. The now widely used protocol lets you log into one site or service. Then that site or service passes an access token to other sites, saying that those sites can have access to the personal data that the first site or service, the one you logged into, has about you. In that way, you can sign into Twitter and then be logged into TweetDeck too, or log into Gmail and find yourself logged into Google Drive, Google Calendar, and the rest of the Google ecosystem. However, the existence of that access token and the fact that it's not bound to any specific online service means that fishers who get the token can get into your account without your email address, username, or password. Two-factor authentication, also known as multi-factor authentication, won't stop the attack. And this is a quote from Wong. He says, quote, the target is no longer the username or password. What you want is the session token. It's already been blessed. Session tokens generally last an hour, but then you can get a refresh token, so it lasts indefinitely. You basically have a permanent credential that has bypassed multi-factor authentication, unquote. Yeah, so unfortunately, there's not a whole lot you can do other than, like this article says, <laughs> logging out of all of your web-based services when you're not using them and only logging in when you want to use them and logging back out, which is completely impossible. So what we really need, frankly, is for this OAuth spec to be tightened up and for these companies that use it to be a lot more restrictive in how it's how it allows you to gain access to something. All right, one more article, and this, this the title of this one alone is just classic. If you just read it, it sounds like it says, you're doing it wrong. But if you read it carefully, it says, you're doing I-O-T-R-N-G. And this is a quote from bishopfox.com, which explains how this works. And I think these were the guys that had that, that, that did the paper. Um, and I actually watched this. This was actually a very interesting discussion uh, at DEF CON. Uh, let me read part of this article they wrote. This says, there's a crack in the foundation of the Internet of Things, or IoT security, one that affects 35 billion devices worldwide. Basically, every IoT device with a hardware random number generator, or RNG, contains a serious vulnerability whereby it fails to properly generate random numbers, which undermines security for any upstream use. Now, there's going to be some technical stuff here. I'm going to explain it when the article's over. Bear with me. In order to perform most security-relevant operations, computers need to generate secrets via a random number generator. These secrets then form the basis of cryptography, access controls, authentication, and more. The details of exactly how and why these secrets are generated varies for each use, but the canonical example is generating an encryption key. In order for Alice and Bob to communicate secretly, away from the prying eyes of Eve, they need to produce a shared secret by using an RNG. Again, random number generator. The fact that Eve does not know this number is the only thing keeping her from compromising the secrecy of the communications. The same story plays out for other aspects of security, whether it's an SSH or secure shell key for authentication or session tokens for authorization. Random numbers are one of the bedrock foundations of computer security. But it turns out that these quote-unquote randomly chosen numbers aren't as random as you'd like when it comes to IoT devices. In fact, in many cases, devices are choosing encryption keys of zero or worse. This can lead to a catastrophic collapse of security for an upstream use. 
As of 2021, most new IoT systems on a chip, or SOCs, have a dedicated hardware random number generator peripheral that's designed to solve exactly this problem. But unfortunately, it's not that simple. How you use the peripheral is critically important, and the current state of the art in IoT can only be aptly described as quote-unquote, doing it wrong. One of the more glaring pitfalls happens when developers fail to check error code responses, which often results in numbers that are decidedly less random than required for a security-relevant use. When an IoT device requires a random number, it makes a call to the dedicated hardware RNG, either through the device's SDK or increasingly through an IoT operating system. Okay, so devices aren't checking the error code of an RNG hardware access layer function. How bad is it really? It depends on the specific device, but potentially bad, very bad. Let's take a look. The hardware access layer function to the RNG peripheral can fail for a variety of reasons, but by far the most common and exploitable is that the device can run out of entropy. Hardware RNG peripherals pull entropy out of the universe through a variety of means, such as analog sensors or EMF readings, but don't have it in infinite supply. They're only capable of producing so many random bits per second. If you tried calling the RNG function when it doesn't have any random numbers to give you, it will fail and return an error code. Thus, if the device tries to get too many random numbers too quickly, the calls will begin to fail. But that's the thing about random numbers. It's not enough to have just one. When a device needs to generate a new 248-bit private key, as a conservative example, it will call the random number generation function over and over in a loop. This starts to seriously tax the hardware's ability to keep up, and in practice, they often can't. The first few calls may succeed, but they will typically start to cause errors quickly. Okay, so this article goes on and on, and it's, it's worth reading if you're into the technical details. But let me see if I can summarize for you. There are many crucially important cryptographic functions that depend on some form of entropy or randomness. There's a lot of deep math in this, but you'll just have to take my word for it. But basically, when you're, for example, trying to create an encrypted connection between your computer and someone else's computer or a server or something, and that sounds like, when would I ever do that? Well, you do it all the time. And, this is, and it's not you doing it, actually. It's your computer and your browser doing it with the, whatever computer you're trying to get to. Behind the scenes, they're doing all these little fancy cryptographic things to set up an encrypted connection. And that depends on being able to create random numbers, truly random numbers. And if you fail to create random numbers, in fact, if you create a predictable non-random number like zero and feed that into these cryptographic algorithms, it screws everything up. It makes them predictable, which you don't want. If bad guys can predict the encryption keys that you're going to generate, then they can just guess the key and then decrypt all of your stuff. And what these guys have found is that our cheap IoT devices that I've tried to fix this problem by building in a random number generator into the system on a chip, the little all-in-one computer chip that many of these things run on, but they did it wrong. Well, no. Actually, the hardware random number generator built in is doing the best it can, but it can fail. And what they found is a lot of publicly available software that is based on these hardware random number generators isn't checking to see when it goes wrong. <laughs> And sadly, what this ends up looking like is, you know, these hardware number generators are looking at all sorts of things and trying to build up this pool of randomness that it can tap. But again, it can only do this so fast. Like, let's say it's got a built-in Wi-Fi. And what it's doing is it's looking at 
the random amount of times that it takes for a packet to arrive. That's, that's kind of random. That is a source of randomness or entropy. They might look at other things like how is the temperature of this chip changing over time or what kind of random noise am I seeing on Wi-Fi signals? And it basically looks for all the, it takes all the sensors it can, all the data it can that has some amount of randomness to it and tries to look at them and build up this pool of randomness. And then when asked, can dip into this pool and give you back a random number based on this pool of entropy. But it can only do this so fast. There's only so many sources of randomness that it can, that it can read. And these things are notoriously slow. They're cheap little processors. And so when you start doing cryptographic things, intensive cryptographic things like generating cryptographic keys, you need multiple random numbers in short order. And so the software is saying, all right, give me one, give me another one, give me another one, give me another one, real quick, give me another one. And the first few probably succeed. It's like, okay, hey, I've got a, I've got a pool here. I'm tapping into that pool. Here's your random number. And it's pretty good. It's pretty random. But at some point it says, ooh, I'm running out of randomness here. You're, you're tapping me out. And eventually it has to say, you know what? I can't give you a real random number. So here's a zero instead. <laughs> and so now this software that is calling for multiple random numbers in a row, all of a sudden is getting a bunch of zeros, which is decidedly not random. Now, what it should be doing is it should be checking to see if there was an error so that it knows that the quote unquote random number that it just asked for was not truly random. They're not doing that. And that is what these researchers have found. And so, again, now we're back at the mercy of these IoT devices to update themselves, which very, very, very few of them will do. Even if you go in and find the setting for this, most of them don't have such a setting, which also means that now you, as the owner of these IoT devices, must keep them up to date. And that even presumes that all the manufacturers are going to hear about this problem, understand this problem, go and fix this problem, and publish a software update to fix the problem. And sadly, even that's not easy. What are you going to do in this case? Are you going to deny a connection to your webcam and somehow communicate to the person with the little app on their phone saying, hey, sorry, I can't talk to the webcam right now because it's run out of randomness. But anyway, this is the kind of stuff that gets presented at DEF CON and Black Hat. So I wanted to talk about those articles. All right, now for the big one. And I will just say at the outset that this whole thing just bums me out. And, and you're probably going to hear that as I try to get through these articles. It bums me out for a lot of reasons. Uh, obviously, the subject matter is supremely depressing. It's a real, real problem. Child sexual abuse materials, CSAM as they call it, is out there. People are trading in child pornography. It's a horrible, horrible thing. It's hard to think of anything worse. And so it's natural to understand that companies like Apple want to do the right thing. They want to help fight this scourge in any way that they can. I get it, but you've still got to do it right. And there's still a bigger picture to keep in mind. So there's been a lot written about this and I've got several articles in the show notes that I'm not even going to read to you today. Uh, and at least one article from Bruce Schneier that has a lot of links to other great articles on this topic. And for the tip of the week, I'm going to recommend that you look at those, but we'll get to that in a minute. I have selected two or three of these articles that I think cover a lot of ground, touch on, I think the major issues, and then I'm going to give you some of my own opinion when this is all done. Now I am reaching out to several people to, uh, interview on this topic that we will definitely come back to this again in the future. I am not a lawyer. I am a technologist. I'm somebody who cares about security and privacy a lot. 
and there are no easy answers to these problems. But Apple has proposed some, and they've got issues, and today we are going to talk about them because that's really important, not just for this specific thing that Apple wants to do, but to apply to all such similar arguments, and they're going to be coming fast and furious in the coming months and years. So we need to, as a society, be debating and thinking about these right now. So, okay. I'm going to start with a website that I don't think I've ever quoted before. It's called Daring Fireball. And then this is somebody else's blog. So you're going to hear somebody in this article talking in first person. That is not me. And this is actually a really much longer article than what I'm going to read for you here, but it kind of touches on the key issues and addresses, I think, some of the key concerns and actually clarifies a lot of things that the media is really getting wrong about what is really going on here. So uh, let me read first from this article from Daring Fireball. Apple yesterday, and this was, gosh, this was a week or two now. Apple yesterday announced three new, quote unquote, child safety initiatives. First, new communications tools will enable parents to play a more informed role in helping their children navigate communications online. The Messages app will use an on-device machine learning to warn about sensitive content while keeping private communications unreadable by Apple. Next, iOS and iPadOS will use new applications of cryptography to help limit the spread of CSAM or child sex abuse material online while designing for user privacy. By the way, this article is a lot more favorable towards Apple than I am. So uh, again, don't mistake this person's first person account and opinion for mine. CSAM protection will help Apple provide valuable information to law enforcement on collections of CSAM in iCloud photos. Finally, updates to Siri and Search provide parents and children expanded information and help if they encounter unsafe situations. Siri and Search will also intervene when users try to search for CSAM-related topics. CSAM stands for Child Sexual Abuse Material, a.k.a. Child Pornography. Another acronym to know, NCMEC, or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, often pronounced NCMEC. That's a nonprofit organization founded and funded by the U.S. government that maintains the database of known CSAM. The third initiative, Updates to Syrian Search, is the easiest to understand and I think uncontroversial. And it's not, but okay. The first two, however, seemed not well understood and are justifiably receiving intense scrutiny from privacy advocates. The messages feature is specifically only for children in a shared iCloud family account. If you're an adult, nothing is changing with regard to any photos you send or receive through messages. And if you're a parent with children whom the feature could apply to, you'll need to explicitly opt in to enable the feature. It will not turn on automatically when your devices are updated to iOS 15. If a child sends or receives or chooses to view an image that triggers a warning, the notification is sent from the child's device to the parent's device. Apple itself is not notified, nor is law enforcement. These parental notifications are only available for children 12 and younger in the iCloud family account. Parents do not have the option of receiving notifications for teenagers, although teenagers can receive the content warnings on their devices. It's also worth pointing out that it's a feature of the Messages app, not the iMessage service. For one thing, this means it applies to messages sent or received via SMS, not just iMessage. In other words, a green bubble, not a blue bubble. But more importantly, it changes nothing about the end-to-end -end encryption inherent in the iMessage protocol. The image processing to detect sexually explicit images happens before or after the endpoints, and by that 
they're calling out, which I've called out myself, end-to-end encryption means that it's encrypted between the two endpoints, or in other words, the phones, the computers, the devices. But at the endpoint, it's not, or otherwise you wouldn't be able to read it. So again, back to the article, it says, it seems like a good feature with few downsides. The EFF disagrees, and they have a link to the article, and I disagree as well. But now to the important part. Okay. The CSAM detection for iCloud photo library is more complicated, delicate, and controversial, but it only applies to images being sent to iCloud photo library. If you don't use iCloud photo library, no images on your devices are fingerprinted. But of course, most of us do use iCloud photo library. For obvious reasons, this feature is not optional. If you use iCloud photo library, the images in your library will go through this fingerprinting. This includes images already in your iCloud photo library, not just newly uploaded images after the feature ships later this year. To opt out of this fingerprint matching, you'll need to disable iCloud photo library. A big source of confusion seems to be what fingerprinting entails. Fingerprinting is not content analysis. It's not determining what is in a photo. It's just a way of assigning unique identifiers, essentially long numbers, to photos in a way that will generate the same fingerprint identifier if the same image is cropped, resized, or even changed from color to grayscale. It's not a way of determining whether two photos, the user's local photo and the image in the CSAM database from NECMEC, are of the same subject. It's a way of determining whether they are two versions of the same image. If I take a photo of, say, my car, and you take a photo of my car, the images should not produce the same fingerprint, even though they're the photos of the same car in the same location. And in the same way that real-world fingerprints can't be backwards engineered to determine what the person they belong to looks like, these fingerprints cannot be backward engineered to determine anything at all about the subject matter of the photographs. And that's a key point that I'm going to return to uh, when I get to my take on this later. The messages features for children in iCloud family accounts is doing content analysis to try to identify sexually explicit photos, but is not checking image fingerprint hashes against the database of CSAM fingerprints. The CSAM detection for images uploaded to iCloud photo library is not doing content analysis and is only checking fingerprint hashes against the database of known CSAM fingerprints. So to name one common innocent example, if you have photos of your kids in the bathtub or otherwise frolicking in a state of undress, No content analysis is performed that tries to detect that, hey, this is a picture of an undressed child. Fingerprints from images of similar content are not themselves similar. Two photos of the same subject should produce entirely dissimilar fingerprints. The fingerprints of your own photos of your kids are no more likely to match the fingerprint of an image in the NECMEX CSAM database than it is a photo of a sunset or a fish. The database will be part of iOS 15, and is a database of fingerprints, not images. Apple does not have the images in NECMEC's library of known CSAM, and in fact cannot. NECMEC is the only organization in the U.S. that is legally permitted to possess these photos. If you don't use iCloud Photo Library, none of this applies to you. If you do use iCloud Photo Library, this detection is only applied to images in your photo library that are synced to iCloud. Furthermore, one match isn't enough to trigger any action. There is a quote-unquote threshold, some number of matches against the CSAM database that must be met. Apple isn't saying what this threshold number is, but for the sake of argument, let's say the threshold is 10. With 10 or fewer matches, nothing happens, and nothing can happen on Apple's end. Only after 11 matches, which is the threshold plus 1, will Apple be alerted. And by the way, uh, that threshold has come out uh, from Apple to be quote-unquote around 30. 
So even then, someone at Apple will investigate by examining the contents of quote-unquote safety vouchers that will accompany each photo in iCloud Photo Library. These vouchers are encrypted such that they can only be decrypted on the server side if the threshold plus one matches have been identified. And this is from Apple's own description, quote, Using another technology called threshold secret sharing, the system ensures that the contents of the safety vouchers cannot be interpreted by Apple unless the iCloud Photos account crosses a threshold of known CSAM content. The threshold is set to provide an extremely high level of accuracy and ensures less than one in one trillion chance per year of incorrectly flagging a given account. And I'll may challenge that number too, but again, let's wait on that. Even if your account is, against those one in a trillion odds, if Apple's math is correct, incorrectly flagged for exceeding the threshold, someone at Apple will examine the contents of the safety vouchers for those flagged images before reporting the incident to law enforcement. Apple is cryptographically only able to examine the safety vouchers for those images whose fingerprints matched items in the CSAM database. The vouchers include a quote-unquote visual derivative of the image, basically a low-res version of the image. If innocent photos are somehow wrongly flagged, Apple's reviewers should notice. All of these features are fairly grouped together under a child safety umbrella, but I can't help but wonder if it was a mistake to announce them all together. And again, this I is not me, it's the blog writer. Many people are clearly conflating them, including those reporting on the initiative for the news media. It's also worth noting that fingerprint hash matching against NECMEX databases already happening on other major cloud hosting services and social networks. From the New York Times report on Apple's initiative, quote, U.S. law requires tech companies to flag cases of child sexual abuse to the authorities. Apple has historically flagged fewer cases than other companies. Last year, for instance, Apple reported 265 cases to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, NECMEC while Facebook reported 20.3 million, according to the center's statistics. That enormous gap is due in part to Apple's decision not to scan for such material, citing the privacy of its users, unquote. The difference going forward is that Apple will be matching fingerprints against NECMEX database client-side, not server-side, which is to say that they're scanning for your stuff on the device, not on their iCloud. But I'll get to that also later. But I suspect others will follow suit, including Facebook and Google, with client-side fingerprint matching for end-to-end -end encrypted services. There is no way to perform this matching server-side with any end-to-end -end encrypted service. Between the sender and receiver endpoints, the server has no way to decrypt the messages with end-to-end -end encryption. Which in turn makes me wonder if Apple sees this initiative as a necessary first step towards providing end-to-end -end encryption for iCloud Photo Library and iCloud device backups which, by the way, EFF has been asking Apple to do for a long time, and I've been complaining about myself. Apple has long encrypted all iCloud data that can be encrypted, both in transit and on server. But device backups, photos, and iCloud Drive are among the things that are not end-to-end -end encrypted. Apple has the keys to decrypt them and can be compelled to do so by law enforcement. If these features work as described and only as described, there's almost no cause for concern. I have deep issue with that. But the if in these, if these features work as described and only as described, is the rub. That if is the whole ballgame. If you discard alarmism from critics of this initiative who clearly do not understand how the features work, you'll still be left with completely legitimate concerns from trustworthy experts about how the features could be abused or misused in the future. What happens, for example, if China demands that it provide its own database of image fingerprints for use with this system, a database that would likely include images related to political dissent? Will Apple actually flatly refuse any and all such demands? If they do, it's all good. 
If they don't, and these features creep into surveillance for things like political dissent, copyright infringement, LGBT imagery, or adult pornography, anything at all beyond irrefutable CSAM, it'll prove disastrous for Apple's reputation for privacy protection. The EFF seems to see such slipping down the slope as inevitable. And so do I. We shall see. The stakes are incredibly high and Apple knows it. Whatever you think of Apple's decisions to implement these features, they're not doing so lightly. Yeah, okay. So again, I got a lot of opinions on this, but uh, let me give a few others first uh, and then I'll get to mine. First, I would like to bring up this very interesting article from the Washington Post. And this is about another group who actually came up with a very similar proposal years ago and abandoned it because they thought it was too dangerous. So this is, again, from Washington Post. Earlier this month, Apple unveiled a system that would scan iPhone and iPad photos for child sexual abuse material, or CSAM. The announcement sparked a civil liberties firestorm, and Apple's own employees have been expressing alarm. The company insists reservations about the system are rooted in quote-unquote misunderstandings. We disagree. We wrote the only peer-reviewed publication on how to build a system like Apple's, and we concluded the technology was dangerous. We're not concerned because we misunderstand how Apple's system works. The problem is we understand exactly how it works. Our research project began two years ago as an experimental system to identify CSAM in end-to-end -end encrypted online services. As security researchers, we know the value of end-to-end -end encryption, which protects data from third-party access. But we're also horrified that CSAM is proliferating on encrypted platforms and we worry that online services are reluctant to use encryption without additional tools to combat CSAM. We thought to explore a possible middle ground where online services could identify harmful content while otherwise preserving end-to-end -end encryption. The concept was straightforward. If someone shared material that matched a database of known harmful content, the service would be alerted. If a person shared innocent content, the service would learn nothing. People couldn't read the database or learn whether content matched, since that information could reveal law enforcement methods and help criminals evade detection. Knowledgeable observers argued a system like ours was far from feasible. After many false starts, we built a working prototype, but we encountered a glaring problem. Our system could be easily repurposed for surveillance and censorship. The design wasn't restricted to a specific category of content. A service could simply swap in any content-matching database, and the person using that service would be none the wiser. A foreign government could, for example, compel a service to opt out people sharing disfavored political speech. That's no hypothetical. WeChat, the popular Chinese messaging app, already uses content matching to identify dissident material. India enacted rules this year that could require pre-screening content critical of government policy. Russia recently fined Google, Facebook, and Twitter for not removing pro-democracy protest materials. We spotted other shortcomings. The content matching process could have false positives, and malicious users could game the system to subject innocent users to scrutiny. We were so disturbed that we took a step we hadn't seen before in computer science literature. We warned against our own system design, urging further research on how to mitigate the serious downsides. We'd planned to discuss paths forward in an academic conference this month. That dialogue never happened. The week before our presentation, Apple announced it would deploy its nearly identical system on iCloud Photos, which exists on more than 1.5 billion devices. Apple's motivation, like ours, was to protect children, and its system was technically more efficient and capable than ours. But we were baffled to see that Apple had few answers for the hard questions we'd surfaced. 
Apple is China's second largest market with probably hundreds of millions of devices. What stops the Chinese government from demanding Apple scan those devices for pro-democracy materials? Absolutely nothing, except Apple's solemn promise. This is the same Apple that blocked Chinese citizens from apps that allow access to censored material, that acceded to China's demands to store user data in state-owned data centers, and whose chief executive famously declared, quote, we follow the law wherever we do business, unquote. Apple's muted response about possible misuse is especially puzzling because it's a high-profile flip-flop. After the 2015 terrorist attack in San Bernardino, California, the Justice Department tried to compel Apple to facilitate access to a perpetrator's encrypted iPhone. Apple refused, swearing in court filings that if it were to build such a capability once, all bets were off about how that capability might be used in the future. And a quote from Apple at the time, it said, quote, It's something we believe is too dangerous to do. The only way to guarantee that such a powerful tool isn't abused is to never create it, unquote. That worry is just as applicable to Apple's new system. Apple has also dodged on the problems of false positives and malicious gaming, sharing few details about how its content matching works. The company's latest defense of its system is that there are technical safeguards against misuse, which outsiders can independently audit. But Apple has a record of obstructing security research, and its vague proposal for verifying the content matching database would flunk an introductory security course. Apple could implement stronger technical protections, providing public proof that its content-matching database originated with child safety groups. We've already designed a protocol it could deploy. Our conclusion, though, is that many downside risks probably don't have technical solutions. Apple is making a bet that it can limit its system to certain content in certain countries despite immense government pressures. We hope it succeeds in both protecting children and affirming incentives for broader adoption of encryption. But make no mistake that Apple is gambling with security, privacy, and free speech worldwide. All right, one more thing before I get to my take on this, and that is, here's a, here's a take from 90-plus world organizations on this, uh, led by the Center for Democracy and Technology. It's an open letter to Mr. Cook, the CEO of Apple. It says, The undersigned organizations committed to civil rights, human rights, and digital rights around the world are writing to urge Apple to abandon the plans it announced on 5 August 2021 to build surveillance capabilities into iPhones, iPads, and other Apple products. Though these capabilities are intended to protect children and to reduce the spread of child sexual abuse material, we are concerned that they will be used to censor protected speech, threaten the privacy and security of people around the world, and have disastrous consequences for many children. Apple announced that it is deploying a machine learning algorithm to scan images in its text messaging service messages to detect sexually explicit material sent to or from people identified as children on family accounts. This surveillance capability will be built right into Apple devices. When the algorithm detects a sexually explicit image, it warns the user that the image may be sensitive. It also sends a notice to the organizer of a family account whenever a user under age 13 chooses to send or receive the image. Algorithms designed to detect sexually explicit material are notoriously unreliable. They are prone to mistakenly flag art, health information, educational resources, advocacy messages, and other imagery. Children's rights to send and receive such information are protected in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Moreover, the system Apple has developed assumes that the quote-unquote parent and the quote-unquote child accounts involved actually belong to an adult who is the parent of a child, and that those individuals have a healthy relationship. This may not always be the case. An abusive adult may be the organizer of the account. 
and the consequences of the parental notification could threaten the child's safety and well-being. LGBTQ plus youths on family accounts with unsympathetic parents are particularly at risk. As a result of this change, iMessages will no longer provide confidentiality and privacy to those users through an end-to-end encrypted messaging system in which only the sender and their intended recipients have access to the information sent. Once this backdoor feature is built in, governments could compel Apple to extend notification to other accounts and to detect images that are objectionable for reasons other than being sexually explicit. Apple also announced that it would build into the operating system of its products a hash database of CSAM images provided by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in the United States and other child safety organizations. It will scan against that database every photo its users upload to iCloud. When a preset threshold number of matches is met, it will disable the account and report the user and those images to authorities. Many users routinely upload the photos they take to iCloud. For these users, image surveillance is not something they can opt out of. It will be built into their iPhone and other Apple device and into their iCloud account. Once this capability is built into Apple products, the company and its competitors will face enormous pressure and potentially legal requirements from governments around the world to scan photos not just for CSAM, but also for other images a government finds objectionable. Those images may be of human rights abuses, political protests, images companies have tagged as a terrorist or violent extremist content, and even unflattering images of the very politicians who will pressure the company to scan for them. And that pressure could extend to all images stored on the device, not just those uploaded to iCloud. Thus, Apple will have laid the foundation for censorship, surveillance, and persecution on a global basis. We support efforts to protect children and stand firmly against the proliferation of CSAM. But the changes that Apple has announced put children and its other users at risk, both now and in the future. We urge Apple to abandon those changes and to reaffirm the company's commitment to protecting its users with end-to-end encryption. We also urge Apple to more regularly consult with civil society groups and with vulnerable communities who may be disproportionately impacted by changes to its products and services. All right, so that's a good summary. But now let me give you my take. Uh, And again, this is going to come up again in the future. I hope to bring somebody on to discuss and debate this issue uh, at length on one of the interview shows. I've already reached out to the EFF, and I may reach out to some others as well. This is something that we need to discuss and debate, and we need to get on top of this and figure this out because this will not be the first time this comes up. And now that Apple has even proposed such a technology and seems willing to deploy it, you're going to see governments and law enforcement and others demanding that this be put in in the future. They have opened the floodgates for this request. So first, I want to kind of clarify that this is an end run around end-to-end encryption. True end-to-end encryption means that, like, for instance, if I'm sending a message from me to somebody else, It's encrypted on my device. I type it up, hit send. It's encrypted before it leaves my device. It's send over the internet through my cellular provider, through my internet service provider, and all the ones in between to whoever receives it. And on their device, it is then decrypted. The applications that we used, let's say Signal, to send that message is in charge of taking the clear text, the unencrypted text, encrypting it, sending it to the other side, And then the corresponding app on the far side decrypts that message and shows the plain text again to the recipient. So it's end-to-end encrypted, but at each end, on each end point, uh, in particular, the operating system and the software on that device have access to the unencrypted message. So 
Law enforcement and FBI have been saying for decades now that they are going dark, that all this horrible encryption stuff means they can't break into communications and see what everybody's talking about. Okay, so Apple has firmly come down on the side of end-to-end encryption is still what they want. It's still what everybody needs. It's required for human rights, yet they say all the right things. But they have now just introduced a way around that, and I'm not sure why. Because now what they're basically saying is, okay, we will not compromise the encryption services. We will not put in a back door. We will not make them weak. They will be strong and they will be indecipherable to anybody in the middle between the two endpoints to intercept and understand what was sent. But we are going to then provide something on our devices that will scan, in this case, pictures, but in the future, who knows what else, for very particular things and and notify people when bad things happen. Okay. (laughs) Basically though, what they're, the genie that they let out of the bottle now is saying, okay, this over here, that's sacred. But if you want to implant something on the device itself that does the surveillance, they're now open to that. Slippery slope arguments are easy to make and it can make the perfect be the enemy, the good. I get that. But this really, really does open the door to some real potential for abuse. And I don't think that Apple has really thought this through. One more little technical detail I wanted to bring up, and that is this whole fingerprinting thing. And so some of these articles talked about it, but I think it's important to understand how these fingerprints, these hashes work. And it really is actually very similar to physical fingerprints, like actual fingerprints. In the real world, if you find someone's fingerprint, you can't then take that fingerprint and figure out what their face looks like. However, If you have a database of fingerprints that match fingerprints to faces, then you can find a fingerprint, find a matching fingerprint, and then find the matching face. And so when you see this on a TV show or a movie, uh, you know, the the visual representation, which by the way, is not what really happens, but what you'll often see is, you know, the guy's looking for the fingerprint match. And so up on his computer screen on the left is a really big picture of the fingerprint they have. And on the right is a whole bunch of flashing images, of a whole bunch of other fingerprints that supposedly the computer is going through and trying to make a visual match on. That is not how fingerprint matching works. And that's not how these photo matching things work. And they're similar. Fingerprints have known features, swirls and twirls and arcs. And I don't know, I'm not a forensic scientist, but basically what a computer does with a fingerprint, even a partial fingerprint is it can determine the key characteristics of a fingerprint and it distills an image of a fingerprint into a mathematical representation of that fingerprint such that other fingerprints from that finger from that person, whether they be partial in a slightly different way, or maybe not quite as clear, will still match the same finger and therefore match the same fingerprint. That is what they are claiming they can do with this hashing technique that they call a neural hash. So if you take a picture, let's say you and I actually start with the same picture. I take a wonderful picture of my dog and I give you a copy of that picture. Now you like that picture, but you don't like the way I cropped that picture. You want to just see the doggy's face. So you crop that image down. You actually eliminate part of that picture and only show a subset of that picture. And that's what you keep. If this technology works as they claim, whether you crop that image, whether you made it a black and white image, whether you maybe saved it into a lower resolution, this neural hash claims to be able to take that 
slightly modified version of this picture and still say, nope, that's the same picture as the original. But as it turns out, somebody, some clever person, has already reverse engineered this neural hash matching algorithm, or at least a previous version of it, and was able to create what they call a collision. That is, they were able to find two pictures that were not the same picture, not even two versions of the same picture, and yet produce the same neural hash. That is a false positive match. Now, Apple claims that this person is not using the the newest version of the algorithm, but the fact of the matter is that algorithm is proprietary and is probably not open for third-party inspection, at least not yet. But so this brings me to another question I have about this whole process. And what I'm really about to do is raise a bunch of questions about this proposed plan. So first of all, from a technical standpoint, Apple claims a one in one trillion or some ridiculous error chance. I don't agree that it's, it could be anywhere near that high, especially with any kind of a fuzzy matching algorithm. So that means two things. First of all, there will be false positives. There will be cases when some pictures hash in your photo library happens to match the hash of a CSAM image, and it's not that CSAM image. Okay, so Apple says they're going to fix that by having some arbitrary threshold. That threshold is currently, quote unquote, around 30. So you would have to have 30 of these mismatches, these collisions, to even trigger the next step in the process. And at that point, a human gets involved, reviews the 30 plus safety vouchers, which are what's actually uploaded when this matching occurs, and looks at a fuzzy version of those images and decides at a human level whether or not this was a violation, and if so, then reports you. Okay, fine. But this database is now downloaded to everyone's phone. And it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when somebody figures out how to crack open that database of hashes. So now the bad guys who want to traffic in these images know what the matches are going to look like. And again, I'm sure that somewhere they're going to figure out how to reverse engineer the neural hash. And so now what I have is the list of matching images, the process by which the, uh, the fingerprints are created and my pictures. And so I can actually go through and find all the ones that match and then either delete them or find some way to change them and test them to see that they no longer match. So that's just a couple of the possible technical ways this could be a problem. But let's ask the most basic question of all. Does this technology, will this new system, this new surveillance system, it, let's call it that because it is, will this technology actually solve the real problem? If this system works perfectly, and it won't, it would flag 30 or more instances of matches to already known child porn images. It won't flag 29 or less. It won't flag child porn images that are unknown to NCMEC. It won't prevent them from storing these images on their device. It will only prevent them from uploading 30 or more of them to iCloud Photo Library. It won't prevent them from storing them in some other truly private cloud server. It won't prevent them from being sent to someone else. And maybe most crucially, it won't prevent the images from being taken in the first place. We obviously have other methods already, effective methods, for fighting child pornography. The mere existence of this image database at NECMEC means that we have succeeded in finding people who have peddled in this horrible, horrible stuff. Or, or, or to put it another way, Apple's whole process here wouldn't even be possible if not for some other successful law enforcement technique or techniques. They do exist. Also, Apple has basically already told us how to avoid getting caught. Just don't use iCloud Photo Library. 
And something else as you as you read about this and listen to this is I want you to pay close attention to two very distinct aspects to all of these proposals. The technical limitations and the policy limitations. This is something else that Jeff talked about just last week in our interview at Jeff Moss. Uh, and that is he and Apple in certain situations have basically tried to engineer themselves out of having these problems or having to deal with some of these problems because they think it's either too thorny for them to deal with or the greater principles override privacy in this case. Apple has gone to great lengths to make sure that in certain situations it cannot hand over data to somebody who asked for it. Not will not, cannot. Those are technical based solutions. However, much of what Apple has proposed are just policy they have said that they won't accept requests by repressive regimes to look for dissidents, let's say. Like if China comes to them and says, well, here's another database full of the faces of Uyghurs that we want you to help us find. And Apple has said flatly, well, we'll just say no when they say that. That is purely a policy decision. That is not a technical reason. There's no technical reason that can't happen. Furthermore, if the U.S. government comes to them and says, we want you to add another database to the list of faces that we're looking for. These are suspected terrorists we want you to look for. Apple says they will say no. But if they are legally required to do so, can they say no? Again, this is not a stretch. Think of the people in Afghanistan right now who have had 20 years, roughly, of relative freedom. And now, almost overnight, their country has changed to a very repressive regime who would love to be able to get to your friends lists and look at your pictures to find the people that they don't like. Also, there are a lot of repressive countries out there who have laws against homosexuality. What if they created a database of known gay people or gay sympathetic people? The technology now is there on the iPhone for them to search for images. And it's only a matter of Apple saying, no, we wouldn't do that. That prevents that them from being used. So understand that this technology is already being used for other things that it's not just CSAM. It's being used for copyright violations. If you try to upload movies or songs or, or certain things, that, or, and particularly, I guess, if you try to share them, you will get flagged for this on Dropbox and OneDrive and many of these other ones because they're, they've got similar techniques already going on because they have the keys. Even though it's encrypted on their servers, they have the keys so they can decrypt them so they can do all sorts of fun things like help you search for documents that you store up there, but also so they can check those things because deep pocketed companies want to make sure that, you know, they're getting paid. So I guess the point there being is you can't look at all of these things and debate them all within the context of the worst possible outcome. And in fact, someone coined a term for this called the four horsemen of the infocalypse. In other words, the info apocalypse. And that is the arguments that are going to be used to allow for more surveillance or to weaken encryption are that we must stop the four horsemen. In this case, it depends on who you talk to, but if you look it up on Wikipedia, it says terrorists, drug dealers, pedophiles, and organized crime. But you get the idea. Basically, if someone comes to you and, and their only argument is think of the children, then you really can't have it a reasoned debate. So you can't just put it in those terms. So anyway, there's going to be technical problems here. There's going to be policy problems, but make sure you keep your eye on which is which. Because policy in particular could be changed at the drop of a hat and without notice. But again, this goes back to like founding principles. This is basically an, a warrantless search. Now, I realize that it's a computer doing it, not a human, but that really shouldn't matter. In the United States, we have a founding principle that says you are innocent until proven guilty. 
that you cannot search somebody without a warrant and probable cause. This system is breaking both of those founding principles. And before we do anything that would do that, we really need to think long and hard about how and if that should be possible. But also there could be some compromises here. I mean, maybe even, you know, what if this algorithm, instead of flagging it and, and sending it to authorities and notifying somebody else, what if it just didn't upload the image? What if it just gave you a warning says, sorry, this image appears to violate some terms of service. We can't upload this particular image to iCloud. Or we found something in iCloud that violates our terms of service. Here is a case number. If you believe this was an error, you may contact us. But not tell anybody, anybody, anything. So you could maybe argue in that case, since it doesn't notify anybody and is technically incapable of notifying someone, it's not even built into the system, can't be done, that is at least more privacy respecting and may still solve the same problem in the same way. It would still prevent this picture from being shared. But the fact that someone has already come up with a way to find a false positive, I think is a chance at least for Apple to save a little bit of face and saying, okay, maybe we're not ready for prime time yet. There may be some technical issues here we want to continue to work on we're going to delay the rollout of this feature and then maybe just never do it. But honestly, I'm afraid that the cat's out of the bag now and that this is now being proposed. And now the governments around the world are going to seize on this and start demanding similar features. And this is something that I've been worried about for a long time. And I think I've said so in this show that that's how this is all going to fall apart. If they can't weaken or put a backdoor in encryption, then they're going to come for our devices and they're going to want the ability to tap directly into our devices and surveil us from there. And that is going to be an extremely, extremely slippery slope that if we start going down that path, we could be in deep trouble. All right, that's enough for this week. It's already long enough. My tip of the week normally would be something a little bit more concrete. Uh, and I suppose if you want to go with that, then turn off your principal layer windows. <laughs> uh, and there are links in the, in, uh, in the show notes that'll tell you how to do that. But uh, this is a thorny issue. Again, I don't claim to have all the answers. I don't claim to be right. Uh, I don't know if there is a right on this. This is a really tough, thorny issue, uh, but I want to land on the side of privacy and sticking to firmly democratic principles and human rights. And we've got to be very, very, very careful when we start doing things like this. And I don't think Apple has thought this through. I hope they put the brakes on this for now. We can have more discussion. And my tip of the week is read more articles on this. Talk to your friends, debate the issue, think it through, argue it out. Let's get more educated on this. Let's form some opinions on this. Let's work on the real problems and see if there are potentially better or at least other ways to combat these that don't have so many technical and policy issues like this one does. And let's see if we can find better solutions to this problem. Ones that actually solve the original real problem. All right, everybody, that was a long one. Thanks for hanging in there. Sorry I got that little preachy on that one. Again, I'm, I'm hoping to bring somebody on the show so we can talk about this in more detail and really have a little give and take. It's kind of weird me just sitting here talking to my microphone about this. I'd like to talk back and forth with somebody about this and, and debate this a little bit more. So hopefully that will happen in the future. In the meantime, again, get educated, read some articles, particularly there's some really good articles in the show notes here that I've pointed to start there. And next week, we will have a really fun interview show about some really cool computer security technology. And don't worry, you know me, we will explain all the technical details without getting too heavy into the jargon. This is the Morpheus Project, which is really important, I think. Uh, and these kinds of technical solutions will help all of us be more secure in the future. I also just conducted a really fun interview 
with Andrea Amico from Privacy for Cars. Uh, something I've been wanting to talk about in the show for a long time. Finally found an expert and really knows his stuff. And I learned some very interesting things, and you will too. Uh, that will be airing in a few weeks. So that's it, everybody. Take care out there. Wear those masks again if necessary. Get your shots. Get a booster when your time comes. And please help others to do so as well. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>